0: Kia ora and welcome into the latest edition of the Extra Time podcast. I'm Clay Wilson and joining me this week we have RNZ sports columnist Hamish Bidwell and two of our country's finest sports commentators Ricky Swinnell and Nigel Yeldon. Well, the big sporting news of the week from a New Zealand perspective arrived on Thursday with the announcement of the pay cut details for this country's top rugby players. After a reasonably prolonged negotiation, it's been confirmed the almost 300 players in question could miss out on as much as $25 million if matches can't resume in 2020 because of the coronavirus crisis. The agreement between New Zealand Rugby and the Players Association protects the base salary of those on a retainer of less than $50,000. But all players aren't able to collect additional payments, such as assembly fees, incentives and bonuses. Nigel, is the newcomer, I'll give you the honours first up here. Um, This agreement obviously has been structured for a a worst-case scenario. What do you make of what the relevant parties have put together here?
1: Well, I think they've done the only thing that they really can do, and I think when you look at what other businesses, irrespective of whether it is sporting or non-sporting, have done, it appears to be very similar in, in that respect with regards to the pay cuts. Um, in terms of the the fifteen percent, we know that uh, higher up there have been pay cuts by members of boards and the administrators at New Zealand Rugby as well. Also, I understand that there's probably a few layoffs that are, that are coming around that particular organisation too, not too dissimilar to, to what we've seen at other businesses. So uh, to me, it is um, clearly uh, driven at, as you say, the worst-case scenario. But what I found quite interesting as I read through it was the key date being September where those payment cuts, the initial freeze is 15%. September, that freeze could hit up to 30%. What that actually told me, trying to look at things a little bit positively, is that, you know, if they can get things up and running by September, there is a chance to maybe minimise those uh, the, the the pay losses for the players involved. And it's primarily, as we know, All Blacks, Black Ferns, Super Rugby players and, and the National Sevens programmes. But I actually saw it as being a reasonably positive from the point of view that given the way things are going or appear to be going from a non-expert eye, with how we're dealing with the coronavirus, if things can get up and rolling, it looks like they may be able to minimise the impact, and that would be huge because if there was absolutely no rugby, New Zealand rugby would be plunged into a crisis mode.
0: Ricky, what do you, what do you make of it? Um, does that does that September date stand out to you? Do you think that's perhaps when they they're looking at trying to get things going, and if they can, that's obviously good news for all concerned, is not it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, look, that seems to be the case, doesn't it? And and I think you don't personally, and I know we're going to get onto it later. You don't want to be going down the NRL path of wild speculation and what could and could happen. But that does seem to be a, a, a logical point as well I mean I think we can all be a, be realistic and, and suggest that we're, we're not going to get much uh, much sport next month if any probably none next month and, and maybe it might start creeping back mid year but to get a full uh, they're looking if that's September date that's therefore to me Probably means they're looking to try and get some full competition, be that a, a souped up minor 10 couple or something like that. Maybe a key factor too in it as well as and we did hear yesterday um, about the possibility of the Trans Tasman. Um, borders and quarantine issues around that and then that perhaps starts to open up the prospect of some internationals again because we know there are Black Ferns and and All Blacks tests against Australia in that sort of August period. Um, In terms of the money side look we spoke about last week didn't we it was inevitable Um, and like Nige said every business and every, every workplace is going through that they look on the face of it that they've done their best to sort of protect the lower-income workers, as is the case in a a lot of places, those under 50,000. Interesting to note that. I thought in there too that with the Black Ferns um, in particular that, uh, that they were exempt from any loss of tournament fees. So that to me suggests they're still looking at something hopefully with them as well. So, um, and, and bear in mind that um, the Black Ferns, the women's players, are, 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 are really part-time. Yes, they're contracted and yes, they're paid to play rugby, but they're not earning anything like a full-time wage in, in, um, as we would in, in any other job.
1: And the Blackburns have got a World Cup coming up next year being hosted in New Zealand as well. So I suspect that's probably another key factor too, Swanners.
0: Yeah. Hamish, a lot of talk about fairness and trying to make this fair across the, the playing base. How close do you think they've come to achieving that?
3: Um, I I genuinely don't care like I just have no interest in in, in high performance rugby at the moment my connection with the game is at community level and my local rugby club's going down the gurgle I want to know what's happening in that space like is there going to be kids footy this year can they play um, any footy like our club is is really precariously placed and you're going to lose 120 juniors and it'll leave a club with one senior men's team and that's it and there's a, a rival club down the road that wants to um, take our junior catchment and, and, and make a sort of a combined sort of super club and all that kind of stuff. And we're really struggling here, do you know what I mean? And I, I can't spare a thought for these people. I genuinely can't. I can spare a thought for the Blackburn Sevens. Sevens as a sport surely is down the googler for the foreseeable future. Like How are they preparing for an Olympic Games? What sort of a high-performance program can we try and put together for those ladies? But genuinely, dudes that are on a million bucks, 500, 250, whatever, they're going to have a bit of a wage holiday. People are losing their jobs. Clubs are actually going to go into oblivion. I genuinely couldn't care less for these people.
0: Nigel, I know the provincial game is close to your heart, given your roots. What do you make of no sort of announcement on that front?
1: Uh, well, it doesn't surprise me because, I mean, from a, a business aspect, and I appreciate where Hamish is coming from. I mean, play, I, you, you know how much I love my Heartland Championship. I ain't going to get to see that this year. I won't see my beloved Butcher Boys run out. We won't see the West Coast. We won't see East Coast. We won't see you know, Buller, North Otago. We, we already know they're gone, okay? So we can you know, scratch any thought of them being involved. So I fully appreciate it. I guess in, in the context of your question, you've got to look at it from a business point of view. And New Zealand rugby's main business focus at this time is the high end because they know that is their way that they can actually get money back into the coffers. If they can get some form of super rugby back up and going, if they can get involved in a rugby championship or international campaign, that is what will fill the coffers up a little bit and maybe avoid having to make that pay freeze go up to to 30%. So, you know, with regards to that lower part, look, I think New Zealand's actually sitting on a really wonderful opportunity to revitalise the sport in this country should they should they not be able to get super rugby going then you're going to say as ricky pointed out a souped up minor 10 cup competition or as as people of myself and hamish's uh would just like to call it what we used to see back in the old days the all blacks running out in the provincial colors now and that would be huge because in addition to that that could possibly help where hamish is referring to because They're not going to be able to go in cold. So if you can get club rugby up and going, where are those players going to go? They've got to go play some club rugby as well before they go and play for their province too. So whilst I understand New Zealand rugby needing it from a business point of view, if for any reason they can't get this done, there is a massive opportunity to revitalise rugby at the grassroots level through the Mita 10 Cup, which I believe would flow on through to the club's Um, All all the way through to that Saturday morning that Hamish holds so dear, and I fully appreciate that. But I can understand why they are putting all this focus there because that's where the coin is. But i tell you what, I I think there's not too many people. Look, if you want to know how good the Mitre 10 Cup could be with all blacks in it, you just need to have watched the Farah Palma Cup, okay, with the Black Ferns in it because that competition was already really good and it just keeps getting better and better and you start seeing young players coming through. The likes of Aisha Leti coming through the system. Grace Booker coming through the system, okay? That's what happens when you get those senior players mixing with the new talent coming through. And I think it would revitalise the game in this country. But I understand the, from the business point of view why New Zealand rugby is so focused on their top end.
3: But that's to pay for the ridiculous wages of their players. Like I just never felt more dislocated from the game than a week or so ago when I saw... I forget if it was on TV or social media, Bowden Barrett at his room you mentioned, trying to kick a ball into a hoop. And I just thought, here's a bloke on a million bucks who's got a sabbatical up his sleeve for down the road so he can go and earn some more money. He hasn't even laced the boot this year. And we have to bankrupt New Zealand rugby to pay for, to keep this guy in the country. And I really think I'm tired of that. I really think that I'd like to see resources put into the, the people who actually are involved at the grassroots level. And so we have a game in 10 years' time rugby wants to go 10 aside. they want to have um, uncontested scrums at every level below premier club level so that's schools up to under 13 level, then you go to secondary school and if you're at an elite school then hey that's great you can play first 15 rugby there, like are we going to have kids at 9 and 10 signing letters of intent for CBHS and Kings and grammar and then in the fourth form you sign for a super franchise, That's that's the model that they were trying to build before the pandemic hit us and I just think that's just a, a road to disaster and I'm sick of rich guys living a life that the rest of us don't lead and us all having to to, to, to sacrifice so they can stay in the country and they can live in the the fashion that they've become accustomed to. And I just just think that sucks.
2: But that's also, that's the problem globally. That's not all backed on New Zealand rugby's fault. But just because it
3: happens elsewhere doesn't mean we should go, hey, that's fantastic, let's do it here.
2: But no, no, no. But I'm, I mean, from the financial perspective, there would be no game here if, if everybody went off overseas like that, other than at that, that grassroots level. They, that I, I get what they have had to do to keep players here for years, because the French and the English clubs give zero about the international game, really. Um, they've got deep pockets, which hopefully won't be that much deeper after all of this. Um, and that this might be the catalyst to change things across the board the biggest fact the biggest issue that the community game has it is going to have at the moment is the lack of is the loss of gaming money is community funds so that's going to dry up completely over the next wee while because there ain't anybody in pubs putting money in pokey machines so therefore new zealand rugby has to find ways to cut some costs looking at the way down and then get some money back into things
0: i guess it's just a, a balancing act would you say niger i mean they're obviously trying to get money in but some part of the business here, some part of the all the organisations that come under New Zealand Rugby's remit is going to suffer here, it has to suffer at some point, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. But I, I, at the moment, I don't think there is a balance. And hence, you know, the frustration we're hearing from bidders that there isn't a balance, but because they are focusing so much on that top end. Um, you know, if at some point, I think they will have to address what is happening down um, at the club level, at provincial level. Um, as I said, they've already chopped the Heartland Championship. So we, we know that that's, you know, just you know, cull one sort of uh, portion, get get that out of the mix. Who knows what's going to happen to those, some of those wonderful provinces over the course of, of time. But the, the, with regards to the balancing act at the moment, there isn't a balance. They are focused so heavily on the top end because that's where they feel they can get their money from. Um, and, you know, New Zealand rugby have had to bat reasonably smart to try and keep some of these players in here, but you know what we're, we're alluding to—it's it's about trying to do what you can for those at the lower end. You, Hamish is right. Someone on a million dollars taking a 15% pay cut is still getting $850,000 per year. Okay, if that comes down to 30, uh, 30% pay cut, you know they're still earning uh, $700,000. That's a that's a boatload of money. That, that's a—you know—some would even say it's an obscene amount of money for people who who, who play sport. But it is those people who are maybe just starting out in their Super Rugby contracts who are on the minimum, who are going, to, who who are, uh, uh, it's trying to protect some of them. So, you know, we see it in all forms of businesses. There are people in the broadcasting industry who are on a boatload of money who I'm sure can afford to take a, a small cut, and yet there are other people who are going to be battling away earning fifty thousand, or those of us who have actually been culled from our particular organisation. So, you know, that's that's really for me. I understand the Balancing Act to a degree, but you know, trying to protect some of those people lower down is a good thing for an employer. And I guess maybe I'm looking at it from that point of view as opposed to those people who are already in a bucket load of cash anyway.
3: Nigel, is, is, it, is it is there scope to discuss picking the old blacks from overseas and, and putting the wage burden on private owners? Uh, it just doesn't seem that... Okay. Um, so that we can afford to, to pay for the game as it was. We were relying on broadcast deals which were sort of thinning out, and now it was private equity companies like CBC in and, and, and Europe who were going to write in and, and, and save us and help bankroll things. Is it, is it time to say, actually, we, we can't pay these wages? You guys can try your luck overseas. We'll pick you if you're good enough, or we need to sustain a game so that we can have a game in 20 years' time.
1: Yeah, I've I've never bit as thought that we actually had the, the, the economics or the or the people to be able to bankroll and and own private businesses. There's there's some egos around who feel as though they could, but I just don't think economically New Zealand is strong enough and have that amount of people with that amount of money to be able to to bankroll it myself. Now, I'm not an economist. It's no, not I'm something talking about
3: being picked from overseas, like French yeah. private
1: owners and European private owners. Well, as I say, the, the interesting thing is, is what is going to happen on the other side of this. I mean, as Ricky alluded to, uh, how much are some of their businesses up there taking a hit? I mean, I know we're focusing a lot here. Are there any clubs up north? Because they have, as you say, some massive bankrolls and some pretty deep pockets. But how are their businesses being affected? are they going to be able to pay those sums of money that some of those players have been offered in the past? Will that be? I think what we're seeing in terms of overall, Hamish and Swans, I actually feel as though this will be a complete changing of the global market. I don't think the sums of money that some players have been paid before in certain parts, I don't know whether they will still get that or whether those businesses will be able to afford to go, hey, Bowden, here's, here's €2 million Euro to come play for Racing. Yeah. No, we we need to pray for a a
3: wage rationalisation across the world and across all codes because people are going to be coming out of this in in financial difficulty and you can't sustain the the wages that players have been earning in in football or basketball or, or rugby or anything, can you? Do you know, I and
2: mean, and on that too, we we talk a lot about the players, um, but we what about the wages of of some of the administrators as well? And I don't necessarily mean in in New Zealand, but across the board in global sports, some of some of the figures that um, some of those kind of people earn are, are just obscene. I was, I think it was, and Nigel, well, I'll I'll throw Tottenham out there as our as our team, and Daniel Levy, the chairman, is getting 12 million quid a year. I mean. It's, it's obscene amounts of money. Um, and, and so, you know, I, and, I, and we, meant, I, we talked about this last week, and I've talked about a lot of people and, and about having that hope and positivity, that about, about this is a chance to really have a look and, yeah. and have a blank page and try and re a whole lot of things. But I think we are going to see, at least for this year, that as and when money comes back into sport and if it's there, it is going to go back into the top end because that's what these organisations are going to need to get things moving again and hopefully... As I just said, I think you said, refill the coffers a bit for yeah. for what's going to be lost for not playing matches this year.
1: I think Bidders has got a point, though, because you look at Australia, I know Australia is looking at um, the possibility, and I think it might have been Phil Kearns, who's obviously trying to get himself a job as the boss yeah. of Aussie rugby, talking about how, you know, let the, let the top players go overseas, focus on, on their, their local sort of stuff, pick the players fr- from overseas. Look, it's something, whether people like that concept or not, there, there, there may be a case of if there is an exodus, because there will be players coming off contract at the end of this year, players. there'll be players coming off contract at the end of 2021. In fact, from memory, there's actually quite a swag. And so they will look, and if French clubs do have that money, they will look to swoop. So it's something that I think that the, the, the suggestion that Hamish has put forward, I think it's something New Zealand rugby will have to consider, given the fact that the landscape is going to be so changed once we get through the other side of this pandemic. They've got to consider it.
3: And players, too, need to be prudent. Like, is it better to, to play in New Zealand for a lesser wage than go and live somewhere where they're, you're packed mm-hmm. in check by jail and they've been, you know, lining up yeah. dead bodies by the hundreds in recent weeks? Like, do you want to go and live there? Do you want your wife and child, you know, exposed to that? Or do you want to live in New Zealand and earn, like, 200000 and live a relatively safe and, and happy life? But yeah, a-
1: well, that, was, that was the selling point for a long time, Hamish. We, we've heard yeah, them so talk so a we, lot we, we about that for plenty of times. Time
3: too long, they're going to offer Joe Bloggs a million, so we've got to offer him a million to keep him. Well, far out, man, do we? Like, I don't think we can sustain that as I keep saying.
0: Yeah, it's no longer going to be probably just a financial decision for some of these players. The way the world's going to change from a health perspective as well and safety is going to come into it. For the players, I want to touch on, before we move on to the NRL, just a return to play for rugby. There was a a bit of discussion about that around this player payment agreement yesterday. There doesn't appear to be a particular date in mind like the NRL have, but it looks increasingly likely, would we say, that a domestic super comp or super comps across the, the, the region would be a starting point for returning to rugby more than anything else?
2: That seems the most logical, doesn't it? And, and look, we've, there's still so many unknowns about travel, um, uh, you know, if, if we're going to be in regional situations, regional comps and all of that. Um, uh, you know, it's it, there's so much crystal ball gazing um, with a lot of this. And, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's particularly helpful at times, as well as, as I say, with the NRL and some of that sort of stuff. So, um, But, yes, some form of domestic provincial-level competition with all Blacks, with Black Ferns um, later in the year. They've got time, you know, they've, they've scrapped things like National Sevens or whatever. They could push through to, to December um, if needs be. But I think we're, we're going to be a very long way off from international travel. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, South Africa and in Argentina and, and situations like that, um, internal tours, uh, could, be, um, could be completely um, out of the reckoning this year
0: the boss of Sanzar had some interesting things to say this week, talking about running the Super Rugby and the Rugby Championship at the same time, perhaps holding the Rugby Championship in one state in Australia or in a continuous block. But I didn't get the feeling from Rob Nickel yesterday, Nige, that the players are particularly keen on that kind of idea.
1: No, I I mean, as I say, sometimes I think people just put their heads up at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. I suspect Andy Marinos has has done that in this situation. I, I think, you know, you got something to say? Put your head up and say it. If you're just saying stuff for the sake of saying stuff, well, don't say stuff. It's as simple as that. Um, we're not experts. They're not experts. Yes, they are getting advice from experts, but you know, everyone is so keen to get sport back simply because I guess it's part of the normalcy of their life. And when you do have a, a society like ours where sport is quite a significant factor, people do want to see it back. It's the same, and I think we'll talk about that when we get to the NRL. Um, um, in Australia the simple fact is is the people who do know are the people who are advising our, our government so I'll, I'll let them do that and when they start actually saying hey look you can start looking at these things then start looking at it yes be prepared but maybe mm. some of those thoughts just need to be kept to themselves until you're in a position to actually say something with some form of positivity
3: we've got people making decisions based on financial desperation whether it be in rugby or, or rugby league and just quickly onto what Ricky was saying. If we are going to have some rugby this year, I don't think we need to have state of origin or possibles, probably north-south. We have an existing framework and the framework is club rugby and provincial rugby and I think it would do a lot for the game at all levels if all blacks and super players played a handful of club games and then went into Hmm. provincial rugby. I think people would enjoy it. People will get behind it. I think it speaks to New Zealand. It's a down-home Kiwi way of doing things and I think let's not go too grandiose. Let's do stuff that's in keeping with with who we are as, as a country.
1: And what that would do is what not only would be great from a rugby point of view, from local business point of view, local community spirit point of view, it would just be good for the country, period. Yep. And I think that's, that's going to be something, that's going to be a role sport will play on the other side of this to a big level.
0: Hmm. I think a lot of people could get behind an idea like that. So just to, to finish up on, on the NRL, they're obviously still pushing pretty hard and there's obstacles still in their way. It seems like many other codes are taking a comparatively Cautious approach. Are the NRL out of step here, or is their financial position putting them in a position where they've got no choice but to push this hard?
3: Yeah, clearly it's money driven. You know, it's not good taste driven. It's not good sense driven. It's not player welfare driven. It's 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 money driven, and um, it's been driven hard by um, a media company. There's on the other side, there's another media company saying we don't want to do this, but we're one of your partners, and we'd rather not. So. Um, it's just about money. It's, it's I don't think it's um, practical. Um, there's so many restrictions from state to state in Australia. You've got teams from, you know, Victoria, Queensland, you've got the Warriors. It's just not, I just don't think it's feasible for them to stage that competition as much as they need to financially. I think setting a date sets a bad precedent, especially when there's no um, detail around that date and having to ram this thing through for May 28. I think that's... I think that yeah, they've got themselves into a desperate and dangerous situation. I would really admire a code. I know it's hard. Money's tight. People want to get back on their feet and get earning again. But I would really admire a code somewhere in the world that said, actually, we're not going to play this year. We don't think it's right. But we'll put all our eggs in the basket and play really well next year. But for this year, it's going to be piecemeal. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to put people in harm's way. We don't want to do it.
2: I, just, I mean yes yeah, it, obviously the the financials of it and and the n r l is very insular isn't it and and at a time when Um, collaboration, a bit of community and all of that is really, really vital. They don't really seem to care. And look, I mean, every sport we've we've talked about with rugby, they they are all making plans and looking at feasibility, what they can do um, and, 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 you know, when they might be able to play and if they do, what does that look like? But they're not doing it with the chest beating and the the bombast and and all of that that the NRL is firing out there. Um, You know, every sport is is trying to prepare, but at, at a time when people across the world, well, A, dying, but B, you know, people are doing it tough. People are trying to homeschool their kids, keep their businesses afloat and all of that. Um, You know, you've got, and then you've got these guys out there and they almost look like they're trying to coerce governments and push governments to do things. I'm sorry, but the government has got more important things to worry about than whether the warriors can go to Australia at the moment. And And I think the warriors have handled themselves pretty well in this. Um, considering they are in the most unenviable position of anyone in the NRL. They keep getting thrown um, thrown in, into the mix all the time in every conversation. But there are there are bigger things to worry about. So, yes, do your planning. Make all of that. Hope that something can happen, but don't tell us about it every two seconds.
1: Yeah, It's a race to be first because they feel if they can get up and running first, then you corner a market and you will get – what that that revenue and you will obviously get the people looking so they are trying desperately hard to be the first. Dana White's doing the same with UFC. He's openly stated he wants to be the first, you know, sport in, in the United States to, to get back to running a normal schedule. Why? Because he knows if he's the first, it's all eyes on him and all eyes on his product and he can maximize the, the money there. It all comes back to dollars and, and cents. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately there's there's you know uh in some cases with the way the NR some of the rhetoric coming out of the NRL there doesn't appear to be very much there doesn't appear to be a lot of sense uh, and it does come across as very arrogant and very disconnected from reality
2: and we, look we know um in terms of the athletes as well and and Hamish mentioned it and, and their welfare in this and yes as we've talked about, some of them are very well looked after for what they do as a job, but they are also not commodities to be sort of thrown around and, and you know, tossed into a hotel in Queensland or somewhere in New South Wales with 300 other blokes playing to, to, to be able to get something back up and running like that. There's a whole lot of other people that are then having to force, the stadium has to open, so who, all the workers that have to go and, and do that and, and they might have their own other things. So it, as I said, it's very insular looking. Um, and and that to me, and, and as Hamish said again, that um, setting that date to what is it, May twenty something, whenever it is, it mm. seems just seems crazy to have set, you know, put your what is it, tied your knot to that mast or something. Say good sailing, chief <laughs> <laughs> me. You know what I mean?
3: As Phil Gould said, who's right about most things in rugby league. Until there's a, a vaccine for this virus, you know, until then, you know, wake me up when that happens. But until then, I, I don't want to hear about plans. I don't want to. I don't want to look forward to something because it just can't happen. It's just not feasible.
0: It's about uh, giving these a lot of these players, or even some of the administrators and and other people, a bit of assurity around what's happening. Because I mean, I think did I see yesterday the mayor of Los Angeles talking about no sporting events or concerts until next sometime next year? I mean, it, it does sound like a big step, but at least it gives people certainty, and you can actually start planning for for that eventuality.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and there is no certainty at the moment. And and it would be very nice to have that. I think we would all like to have some form of certainty um, about what is going to happen in the next month, God, the next week, the next month, the next six months. But that is not going to happen because guess what? We don't have control over a global pandemic and how that works.
0: Doesn't the Warriors' situation, to me, it just struck me that it sort of sums up the whole mess with the NRL. They're, they're going, they're not going, um, dates are changing, what are they doing, you know, are they taking their families, are they not taking their families? It almost sums up the whole mess with the NRL quite well. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. It also
3: underlines that they're, they're a bit part player. I don't think the NRL are particularly wedded to the Warriors. They understand the idea of a market where you can sell sponsorship in New Zealand, and that's fine. But they're a football afterthought. They're not being consulted barely at all in this process. They're, they're, they're absolutely just sort of forgotten. They're across to the Tasman, and sort of, they'll be do what they'll do what they're told. And I admired Cameron George, the CEOs, for saying, "Hey, look, can you keep us in the loop here? Like, we've got families. We can't just leave on a you know be told on a Friday we're leaving on a Sunday. We need we need a yeah. bit more." You know, a bit more consultation here, but that's that's where they are, sadly.
1: Yeah, well, well the, the value that the Warriors, sorry, the, the value that the Warriors bring to the NRL is bums, extra bums on seats. And so, if you're playing in front of empty stands, the value of the Warriors actually diminishes slightly because they bring in that New Zealand element of expats into the, into the stands.
2: It did, it did crack me up a couple of weeks back. remember when they played that game and they went over and they played and they had the quarantine, how all of a sudden they were struck. Everyone's second favourite team, the Australians, love them, what heroes. I was like, oh, do me a favour, NRL. You have not cared about the Warriors for years. There's, Come there's on. There's still a bit of
0: ground to make out there. <laughs>
1: I'd say some great leverage for the Warriors, and I'm sure Cameron George is going to know how to absolutely utilise that leverage as well to the best of his ability for the benefit of the club. So go get him, Cameron.
0: And that's all for this week. Thanks to Hamish, Ricky and Nigel for joining me, and thanks to you out there for tuning in. We hope you're all safe and well, and we'll catch you next time here on the Extra Time Podcast.